Well, if you have your Bible, you can flip over to the book of Matthew and chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Today is part two of the Bible study that we started last time. And I just want to, you know, kind of give you a little bit of heads up that there are some difficult things in this passage that we'll be looking at today. There are the kinds of things that if you weren't uh, of the ilk of teaching through the Bible, no matter what it is that you run into, this might be some stuff that you would jump over just because of the discomfort that it might create in your life. But we don't do that here. We teach through the Bible, chapter by chapter, through a book. And this is what's up next. This is what we're studying today, okay? Because that's, that's the way we do it here. That's the way we roll. We study the Bible. Well, by way of review, in the first 15 verses of Matthew chapter 10, which we looked at last time, Jesus sent out the 12 disciples on a mission to do the same kinds of things that they had been watching Jesus himself do. Go away, crazy keyboard on my tablet. Just like, shh. Don't start spazzing on me here. I'm trying to teach. He sent these 12 disciples on a mission to do the same kinds of things that they had been watching Jesus do. And they were to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near to heal the sick, to raise the dead, cleanse the leper, drive out demons, he said. And in verses 5 through 15, he, Jesus gave the disciples very specific instructions for how they were to carry out this particular mission. Now, in the remaining verses of the chapter, which we'll be looking at today, Matthew records teaching by Jesus that is directed not only to the twelve disciples, but to all of his followers, then, now, and in the future. Near the end of our Bible study last time, we looked a bit at some things to help us when we are rejected by people when we are sharing Jesus Christ with them. And in the passage that we're looking at here today, Jesus talks a lot more about the rejection that his followers will face and how we are to respond. Direct, overt, open persecution is not something that has been a common part of the lives of followers of Jesus in this country. Persecution has, however, been a very real part of some Christians' lives since the beginning of the church. This is true even in our own day in some parts of the world. Now, although we have been spared persecution in large part in this country for being a follower of Jesus, the things that Jesus teaches us in this passage today are still relevant for us. First, these things should serve to motivate us to be active sharers about Jesus with others, especially when we consider that the personal cost for doing so in this country is so low. I mean, we will suffer very little, if at all, for sharing with others about Jesus. Second, there may come a time in our life when persecution does happen, and we should be prepared for that moment no matter how severe that persecution might be, whether it's just simply you know, pushing you outside of the circle of other people or arrest, torture, death, whatever it might be. Verses 16 through 42, which is what we're looking at today, it's an extended teaching passage by Jesus. And I've 
broken it into chunks for us to help us get hold of the major ideas of the passage. It breaks down like this. We're going to talk about the character of the messenger of Jesus. Expect opposition. Don't be afraid. Allegiance to Jesus above all others. And finally, the Lord is generous with his rewards. So let's look at verse 16, the character of the messengers of Jesus. In verse 16, Jesus says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Jesus describes the kind of character that we're to have as we interact with the unbelieving world around us. There are three things I want to draw our attention to in this verse. First, Jesus has sent us out like sheep among wolves. Consider some of the differences between sheep and wolves, and by implication, differences that should be present in us as followers of Jesus in this world. First, sheep, they don't have sharp teeth. Wolves do. Sheep are in large part weaponless. Wolves are armed and dangerous. Wolves have the advantage in a one-on-one fight. Sheep don't eat other animals for food. Wolves devour other animals. That's how wolves get their strength. Sheep are nonviolent animals. Wolves are known for their violence. Sheep function best when they follow their shepherd rather than other sheep. Wolves are pack animals who follow their own self-appointed leaders from among themselves. Sheep depend on their shepherd for protection and provision. Jesus doesn't tell us to stop being sheep. Jesus doesn't tell us to start acting like wolves. Instead, he instructs us on how to be better sheep. And Jesus tells us here to be as shrewd as snakes. The word translated shrewd, it means prudent, wise, understanding, insightful, perceptive, smart using good judgment. The idea is to have wisdom and insight to do the right thing at the right time in the right way to achieve the greatest good. We're to be as innocent as doves. The word translated innocent, it means pure, unmixed, having integrity, truthfulness, without deceit. These two characteristics should be coupled together in the follower of Jesus. Shrewdness by itself can make a person arrogant. Innocence by itself can make a person gullible. Together, they form the kind of character that represents Jesus well in a fallen and broken world. Verses 17 through 25, expect opposition. Verse 17, Jesus said, be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. 
on my account, you will be brought before governors and kings and witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. What's predicted here in verses 17 through 20 is what happened to many of the first followers of Jesus after his death, resurrection, and ascension. Some quick examples. Peter and the other apostles were brought before the Jewish authorities to give account for what they had been preaching about, and they were flogged in Acts chapter 5. Stephen, you might remember, was brought before the Jewish authorities in Acts 6 and 7 for preaching about Jesus. The Holy Spirit empowered Peter, giving him words so powerful and full of wisdom as he testified before them that they were overwhelmed and they responded by gnashing their teeth, dragging him out of the city and stoning him to death. Paul was brought before Jewish and Gentile authorities of various kinds on a number of occasions and beaten and flogged and stoned for preaching about Jesus. In the Bible study last time, we talked about each of the 12 apostles noting what kind of people they were when Jesus called them to follow him. We saw that they were a lot like us. They were, for the most part, just regular kinds of folks. They weren't the best and the brightest. They weren't perfect. They had issues and problems just like we do. And yet God used them. And God will use us too if we will get onto the field rather than just being a spectator. Well, something we didn't talk about last time is what happened to each of the apostles following Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. I mentioned that Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, he was overcome with guilt for the awful thing he had done, and that he had gone out and he hanged himself. What about the other eleven? The Bible doesn't tell us what happened to most of these guys. We have to rely on church history and tradition for that information. And I want to give a quick account of each of these guys. Simon Peter. He would die as a martyr for his faith in Jesus, being put to death in Rome by the command of the evil Emperor Nero. Church Tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down at his own request, saying that he was not worthy to die in the same way that his Lord Jesus had died. Andrew. Church tradition says Andrew was crucified in Patras, Greece, on an X-shaped cross, which came to be called an Andrew's cross afterwards. He was tied to the cross rather than nailed to it, and it then took several days for him to die. It says that he preached about Jesus to the onlookers while he hung on that cross for all those days dying. James, son of Zebedee, he was the first of the twelve to be martyred for his faith in Jesus. King Herod put him to death in Acts 12. John, Church tradition says John was arrested in Ephesus for preaching about Jesus and thrown into a large vat of boiling oil with the intention to kill him. Miraculously, he survived it. 
and was then sentenced to slave labor in the mines on the island of Patmos. John would eventually be freed and allowed to return to Ephesus, where he died of old age. Philip. Tradition says Philip died as a martyr for his faith in Jesus by the order of the proconsul of the city of Hierapolis. The story is told that the proconsul's wife became a believer through the preaching of Philip, and the proconsul was so angry about it that he had Philip tortured and killed for it. Bartholomew. Tradition says he died as a martyr in Armenia where it said he was skinned alive and then beheaded. Thomas, church tradition says he traveled east as far as India, preaching the gospel, and he died there as a martyr being run through with spears. Matthew, church tradition says he died as a martyr for his faith in Ethiopia. James, son of Alphaeus, it's believed that he was killed in Egypt for preaching about Jesus. Thaddeus, church tradition says he was put to death in Persia, modern-day Iran, for preaching about Jesus. He was killed with an axe. Simon the Zealot, tradition says he too died as a martyr in Persia for preaching about Jesus and refusing to worship their sun god. Excluding Judas, who betrayed Jesus, all of the apostles suffered tremendous persecution and died as martyrs for their faith in Jesus, except for John, who they had tried to kill, but he miraculously survived that attempt. It's not true for all followers of Jesus at all times, but some of the followers of Jesus throughout the ages can expect to face persecution similar to those that the apostles faced. They can expect to be betrayed and hated by members of their own families. In verse 21, Jesus says, Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will, re will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. They can expect to even be put to death. Jesus says his followers can expect persecution because Jesus himself was treated this way. If they did it to him, they will do it to his followers. If they accused him of doing the works of the devil, they will do the same with his followers. In verse 24, he says, The student is not above the teacher, nor the servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the household has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? The next section, don't be afraid. Jesus tells his followers three times in this passage, verse 26 through 31, to not be afraid of those who oppose them because of Jesus. Why should we not be afraid? Jesus gives us three reasons here. First, the Lord wins. 
The truth triumphs. In verse 26, he says, Do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. At the final judgment, those who have persecuted Jesus' followers will be exposed and held accountable for the wicked things they have done. Why should we not be afraid? The soul matters more than the body, Jesus said in verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I think it's safe to say that the vast majority of us are not looking forward to our physical death, and definitely not a physical death that would come at the hands of persecutors through painful torture. Can I assume that? As unwelcome as that kind of physical death might be for us to think about, the death of our soul would be far worse in every way. Our physical body is temporary. What torment and suffering that can be inflicted on our physical body is as nothing in comparison to facing the eternal torment of our soul in hell, Jesus says. If we're to fear anyone, it should be God, who alone can determine our final destiny. Jesus immediately reassures us by following this up, though, with pointing out the tremendous love that God our Father has for us. We are precious to our Heavenly Father. In verse 29, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your Father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. The value of a sparrow was as nothing in the eyes of the people. But not a single one of these little birds falls to the ground without our Heavenly Father knowing and caring about it. How much more precious to Him are you and me? Our Heavenly Father is mindful of every detail of our life. The very hairs of our head are all numbers it. Numbered, it tells us here. How much more precious to Him are we and the things that we're going through? So, He says, don't be afraid. You're very precious to the Lord. Nothing ever happens to you that He doesn't know about and care. Nothing can separate us from His great love for us. Romans 8.38, it says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The famous Scottish leader of the 16th, or church leader of the 16th century, John Knox, who faced a tremendous amount of persecution for his faith in Jesus at the time, when buried, they said about him, Here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of any man. Next, allegiance to Jesus above all others. In verses 32 through 39, these next verses, they focus on a person's relationship with Jesus. And here's the big idea. Jesus calls us to such a radical devotion to him and his kingdom 
that it disrupts and it forces a recategorizing of all of our other allegiances. Even our closest human relationships are challenged. Verse 34 says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. This is Jesus talking. Jesus is not seeking a peaceful coexistence with everything else in our life. Instead, he's demanding a place of precedence over all other things. Jesus is not seeking a peaceful coexistence with everything else in this world. One day he will step upon the world stage and every knee will bow and every tongue acknowledge him as Lord, it tells us. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is not a complete picture of the real Jesus. That phrase is not in the Bible, by the way. He's meek and mild to the poor, broken, lost people of this world who come to him. But he wants more for us and for this world than peaceful coexistence. He wants to rescue and redeem and remake us and this world, and he must triumph for that to happen. Jesus says a person who is his disciple is to value their relationship with Jesus more than acceptance by other people. Verse 32, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Jesus says a person who is his disciple is to value their relationship with Jesus more than their relationship with their family. Verse 37, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, he's not saying that we can't have a good, close, loving relationship with our families. He encourages us to do that, actually. He's saying allegiance to him is to take precedence over all other human relationships, including our closest relationships. Jesus says a person who is his disciple is to value their relationship with Jesus more than life itself. Verse 38. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And finally, in verses 40-42, the Lord is generous with his rewards. See, as radical as the commitment is that Jesus calls people to, so is he radically generous with his rewards to those who receive him and his people. Verse 40 says, Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. 
Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Welcoming the people of Jesus is the same as welcoming him. Welcoming Jesus is the same as welcoming God the Father. Welcoming a prophet who carries the message of Jesus will receive the reward of that prophet. Welcoming a righteous person, one who is carrying out the will of God in Jesus, will receive the same reward as a righteous person. Even something as simple as giving a cup of cold water to one of the least of Jesus' followers will be rewarded, he says. In closing, a lot of what we have read here today is some pretty stiff medicine, isn't it? I mean, it's not easy stuff to hear. It's not easy stuff to embrace. We're not sure if we would be courageous enough to not deny Jesus in the face of terrible torture and death. You go, I don't know if I could do that. We're not sure if we can truthfully say that we love Jesus more than our children, our spouse, our parents. I I don't know. It's tempting to feel overwhelmed with the gravity of this teaching by Jesus. But I want to remind us of where our security is. It's, It's not in our performance. It's in the faithfulness of our God. Jesus is calling us to a radical commitment to him. There's no doubt about that. We've talked a little about the lives of the 12 disciples each of the last two weeks. Last week we looked at what these people were like when Jesus called them. They were just plain folks like you and me. Today we talked a little about how each of these people died, excluding Judas who betrayed Jesus. All of them endured tremendous persecutions and All but one of them died as martyrs for their faith in Jesus. What changed them into such courageous, faith-filled representatives of Jesus, willing to face torture and death for him? It was the Lord giving them the power they needed when they needed it. And that same empowering is promised to every one of Jesus' followers. They'll have what they need when they need it. These guys would be the very first ones to tell us that their dying for their faith in Jesus is not a testimony of the amazing courage that they mustered from inside of themselves. Rather, it's a testimony of the amazing faithfulness of the Lord to them. They're not the heroes. He is. The same is true for us. We're not the heroes. We're not expected to be the heroes. He's the hero. 
1 John 4, 4, the Apostle John, the guy who got thrown in that giant vat of boiling oil, he wrote this. He says, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The one in you is greater than whatever you will face in this life. And so we say with confidence, Hebrews 13, 6, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And so, brothers and sisters, let us share Jesus with a world that needs him. Let's close with prayer. Father, we, we thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for the things that you've said to us today. These are not easy things for us to hear. They're not the kinds of things that we really want to hear. Not the kinds of things we want to think about, Lord. We thank you for your truthfulness. We thank you for the tremendous call that you have on our life. We thank you for the amazing promises that you have made to us. We thank you for the life and the death and the resurrection of yourself that has made it possible for us to know you and to have a, a new life in you. Lord, I ask that you would fill each one here with a newfound reassurance of your love and, and faith in you, Lord, and confidence in you today. And that we would go out and we would share, Lord, about you. And be reassured of your love and that you were always with us. In Jesus' name, amen.